0: You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us.
1: Hi, I'm Annie near Boston. And I'm Johanna near Vienna, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. We are the True Crime and Macabre History Podcast with two hosts, On opposite sides of the Atlantic, we have never met.
0: That's right. In last week's episode, I had such a great chat with you. And unfortunately, you listeners only heard about 20% of Johanna's side. We had some unfortunate audio problems with your mic. And so you couldn't really hear her. If you couldn't hear Johanna for large portions, that's why. So thank dog. It was an episode of me telling her everything or it would have been a serious, serious problem. But if you noticed that she was unusually quiet, or I was laughing maniacally by myself, (laughs) now you know why.
1: Yeah, I was there, I swear. (laughs) But I'm also going to be super quiet today, because I'm very interested in a story, and I don't know anything about it yet. So one last thing before we start. Big shout out to our newest Patreon, Jess. And as always, we are so thankful for all of your support, not just Patreon, everywhere. Absolutely. All right. So, last week we discussed
0: the terrible events of December 6, 1917, which took place during World War I when the French ship SS Mont Blanc was struck by the SS Emo, a Belgian relief ship. And subsequently exploded while in Halifax Harbor. Last week, I explained the sorts of injuries that you would see after a blast of this magnitude. We're gonna talk more about that today. And I think when we left off last week, the massive explosion had just happened and it would be followed by a tidal wave, then a rapidly spreading fire, which would engulf the entire city, including the wreckage in which people, still living people, we were still trapped. Meanwhile, that same evening, a nor'easter moved in, bringing freezing temperature, high winds, and deep snow. A nor'easter is sort of like a tropical cyclone, but with snow instead of rain. Thankfully, on the same day as the explosion, Boston, among other towns and cities in Canada and New England, were mobilizing to respond to aid Halifax in whatever way possible. So, we have a lot to cover today. As with last week, we are going to be discussing the deaths of children and adults, and this episode is graphic, but not gratuitous. We have a lot of witness accounts and medical reports, so there's quite a few quotes in this episode, but, you know, it's necessary, and Mm. we just want to be sure our sources are quoted and named properly. Speaking of those sources... For today's conclusion of our coverage on the Halifax disaster, in addition to last week's sources, we've also got the article in Legion magazine by Sharon Adams, a transcript of a presentation entitled, quote, City's Saviors The Military Response to the Halifax Explosion, quote, which was given by author and retired Colonel John Boileau to the Royal United Services Institute of Nova Scotia. The Nova Scotia Archives, a great piece on Billy Wells and the Halifax Fire Department at the time for the CBC, which was written by Katie Parsons, and more that you're going to hear me talk about within this episode. And if you would like any of this information, we'll give you more information on how to contact us at the end. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the blast and the tsunami have absolutely devastated this busy wartime port and there wasn't a huge police or fire force in town. As I mentioned last week, the fire chief, Edward Condon, and eight other firefighters had been killed in the blast. To quote Boileau, On Pier 6, the fire chief and seven of his men, including his deputy, died instantly when the Mont Blanc exploded. Another fireman succumbed to his injuries on New Year's Eve. Patricia, Patricia was Canada's first motorized pumper truck, and the Halifax Fire Department was Canada's first fire department. Patricia was a jumbled mass of wrecked machinery, but amazingly, the La France Engine Company rebuilt her. Miraculously, Patricia's driver, Billy Wells, survived. The blast catapulted him from the driver's seat, and the tsunami that followed knocked him unconscious. When he came to, he was far from Pier 6, wet completely naked, with deep wounds in the muscles of his right arm. His left arm was uninjured, but bizarrely still gripped a piece of Patricia's steering wheel. Wells spent two days on a hospital floor, waiting for a bed, and a further five months in the hospital, recuperating. The LaFrance Company presented Wells with the remaining piece of the steering wheel. Hmm. Yeah. Although these seamen and firemen were the first to die, the time between their deaths and 1,600 others was imperceptible. It only took half a second for the blast wave to reach its maximum destructive power. End quote. So I thought that was interesting because we were talking a little bit about that blast wave and how fast is instant. How, you know, how quick is it really? And half a second. Half a second. Also, we're going to talk more about how there's just nothing to do with anybody's thoughts or feelings. But can you imagine today if you were the lone survivor of something and then the company was like, look, this thing, you can remember this by forever. I mean, the intent was good. I find that kind of cool. It is cool. I just don't know how cool he like he. It is cool. But like, oh, survivor's guilt is a real.
1: I mean, it's something it's it's a conversation piece for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: But yeah, these deaths would have been just as instant as we were hoping they were per last week's discussion, I think, right? They were just hooking up hoses right as close as you could be to the ship when it exploded. Mm. At the time of the blast, Alexander Gordon was a young soldier from Portland, Maine, who, along with hundreds of others, was in Halifax waiting for transport to join the war overseas. Alexander was at the Imperial Recruiting Station when the explosion happened. After, he sent a detailed letter home, which the Portland Sunday Telegram published 10 days after the tragedy, on December 16, 1917. This, for me, is the best eyewitness account that I found, and it really combines quite a few others that I've read. I will warn you now that this is hard to read and it is hard to hear, but I figure if these people actually lived through this, the least I can do is read their accounts. So, this is in part what Gordon wrote home. Quote, The papers have acquainted Portland somewhat about the extent of the awful calamity which visited this city. I was lucky and escaped without even a scratch although several men were killed near me and hundreds were painfully and dangerously wounded. I had a miraculous escape. I felt the ground under me tremble violently and at the same time a blast like the crack of doom. I remarked to the chap next to me, that's some blast, and had just finished speaking when everything seemed caving in and smashing about us. Part of the great armory roof blew in on us, as well as the great window frames weighing tons. Beams, girders, shrapnel, steel plates, glass, slate, and everything imaginable filled the air and were falling all around us. I made a dash for the opening, which brought me into a room from which there was no escape, except the way I entered. Heavy articles crashed about me, and I retraced my steps at full speed, clearing everything in my way. Frankly, I thought I'd be killed for the great walls shook, and why they didn't fall in mystifies me. I'll never forget the sight which greeted me when I regained the open. Bleeding men, women, and children painfully cut were about me in hundreds, and they were immediately joined by hundreds of civilians, panic-stricken with fear, and many of whom were badly injured. I saw bleeding mothers running with injured babes in arms, and wounded children tugging along at their sides. All this was mere bagatelle, to what I was to shortly witness when I went to another part of the town where the explosion was most severe. Here, hundreds of homes, warehouses, docks, freight and passenger cars had been simply obliterated. I saw a few wounded at this point, but counted 214 horribly mutilated bodies, including men, women, and children. Many of the bodies were stark naked, clothing evidently having been blown off them by the explosion which tore everything before it. I saw one small body, with the head decapitated, lodged on the cross piece of a telegraph pole. Giant trees were shorn of their branches, and their huge trunks had been snapped off like small twigs. Freight cars were piled on top of one another, and the tracks were twisted in all sorts of shapes and designs. I saw three fairly large ships thrown upon shore and piled one on top of the other. The gun on the munitions ship, which weighed tons, was found three miles away from the scene of the explosion. There were about 5,000 tons of high explosives, including shrapnel on the ship, so when the explosion took place, the air was literally filled with millions of pieces of steel. Ship plates, bolts, chains, etc., which spread destruction in every direction. A short distance from the explosion, I witnessed the most heartrending scenes, for in this area the blast had not obliterated buildings, but had reduced them to complete ruins, crumbles, and had buried their occupants. I worked frantically with a man whose home was a mass of ruins in which his family were buried. We reached his two daughters, but they were beyond our aid, for both were dead. We could hear the mother moaning, but were powerless to help as we couldn't lift the heavy timbers without aid. Her moans soon ceased, and I presume she perished. I carried out a small boy and lugged him on my shoulders to a spot of safety. He was badly mangled and cried all the way of the journey. His father claimed he was all he had left out of five children. I saw a man who was crying crying and who told me between his moans that he had lost his whole family, I asked how many. He replied, Eleven. Just think of it. Incidents of this kind were common. I never imagined I could do the things I could do, but there was no time to think, and everybody was lending a willing hand. I carried mangled bodies, saw people die by the scores as I reached them, carried them, and still remained unaffected. Fire broke out in hundreds of places, adding horror and burning many victims still alive in the ruins. Also, in the midst of these terrible scenes, a new panic broke out when the alarm was given to fly for the distant hills, as the magazines at the fort would probably be reached by the flames. The scenes enacted upon the receipt of this information baffle description. I shall never forget them. However, the magazines were saved. Only by heroic work. There is so much suffering here brought about by the blizzard which followed on top of the disaster. Relief work is well in hand and everything is now turned to reconstruction. End quote. So there are some really awful things to think about in that eyewitness account. Hmm. Yeah. There were a lot of different eyewitnesses' accounts that mention the child in the telegraph pole i think that was something that probably the whole town had to see so he also says in a letter that he thinks the trenches will be a lot easier to cope with than this experience was and he actually was not the only military member to express that feeling having seen both the front lines of war and the aftermath of the halifax explosion lieutenant colonel frank Bell. Assistant Director of Medical Services, Military District 6, noted, quote, I have never seen anything on the battlefront equal to the scenes of destruction that I witnessed in Halifax today, end quote. I think his battalion was actually like the first, one of the first, like right at the front lines.
1: And I mean, that says a lot because uh, yeah, people always talk about the horrors of the trenches, the trenches. of World War once. Exactly so, right. Yeah.
0: Yep. But some of the stories are amazing in a slightly more positive way. So another more well-known case that's similar to that of Fireman Wells is the story of Charles Mayers. He was blown off his cargo ship, the Middleham Castle, and found himself on a hill overlooking the harbor, uh, naked apart from his boots, because, again, his clothes had been blown off, which... I didn't know that was something that happened until this episode. Did you know that explosions blow all your clothes off?
1: I didn't know for sure, but that's something I kind of imagined that would happen. Yeah.
0: So he comes to, and he is bruised and cut up pretty badly and absolutely filthy from that disgusting oily rain, and he's soaking wet, and he finds himself on a hill about a kilometer from where the ship was. So... The hills, I think, ended up saving some lives because the town sort of as you leave the harbor, you're going to be going uphill from the minute you leave the mm-hmm. harbor. You know what I mean? So you're looking down on it when you're in when you're in Halifax. And so what happened is he was blown up into the air and across, I guess, and the the ground rising up with its natural topography saved his life. Because if that oh, hill hadn't yeah. been there, right? Then he would have fallen yeah. that equal distance and would not have probably survived the fall.
1: So, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, wow. right. Yeah,
0: and he wasn't the only one. When he came to, apparently there was like a fourteen-year-old girl in a similar state to him that he didn't know. And of course, nobody could hear anything. You know, they're they're sort of blind. They're they can't. And somebody came out with a raincoat and some pants for him and Bob's your uncle. There are a lot of. A lot of really good stories of babies and children that were found alive in the rubble because they were saved by a family dog. Mm. I know the warmth kept them from freezing to death when the snows came. And then their barking alerted searchers to the presence of infants and children that were too weak to cry. So that was pretty amazing Um, and always very happy for searchers when they find somebody still alive. But of course, not everybody was so lucky, if you can call being the only surviving member of your family lucky. Johanna, is your family team, we all go down together, or do you travel in groups like royalty to protect the bloodline? (laughs) We're the former. My family was always like, we're all going down together. I don't want to live without all of you.
1: (laughs) I'd say definitely number one as well. But um, in a fight until the end kind of situation or kind of way, uh, my husband always gives me this... It's going to sound so weird, I know, but he always gives me these drills on what to do, where to go, how to fall, how to cover, how to hide, uh, what to do if somebody enters the house, blah, 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 all these things. Maybe that's expected from a soldier, I don't know, but he does that. And and yeah, I, I I find myself when walking the dogs, now that it's dark early, thinking about the drills he gives me. and Yeah,
0: I think that's hand. I would love a drill. I love to just know someone else to tell me what to do.
1: <laughs> Great.
0: I love it. So, as we said, you know, 2,000 people died. About 1,600 of those were instant or nearly so. And then another 400 people would die in the days and weeks following the explosion, with over 9,000 injured. And of course, many people were permanently blinded or left with other really debilitating injuries. Those who survived raced home if they were at work in order to check on families and often found them all dead. In some areas, people rushing home from a less affected area could not even find their home in the rubble. So I think that previous, I'm not sure how clear it was. In that previous eyewitness testimony, what you can hear is that there are definite stages of where the blast hit, right? So closest, there's like nothing. Everything's been absolutely just obliterated. There's just nothing. But then there's a buffer zone where all the houses have knocked down, been knocked down, but the houses are there. And then beyond that, you've got houses with damage that aren't collapsing. Does this make sense? So kind of think of yeah, outward yeah. Mm-hmm. rings like that. Yeah. So what was happening is people would rush from, you know, where all their windows had blown out to home and couldn't find home. They, they literally didn't know there were not enough markers to figure out where you lived anymore. Mm-hmm. That's how devastated certain areas were.
1: That's something you hear, hear from people who experienced World War II and when they're in the city, when their yes. streets were bombed, for example. Yes, yeah, absolutely. They couldn't find their houses anymore. Yeah. And so
0: everyone who wasn't just totally incapacitated by injury or shock uh, was digging through rubble in just a desperate race against the spreading fire. In the coming days, injured soldiers returned home from the front to find that while they had survived the war, their entire family had been killed while they were away. I haven't even touched on the ships in the harbor. I can't, I just can't, because there's too much to talk about. So, as I mentioned last week, when all of this happened, the mayor of Halifax was not in town. And so the immediate response was the responsibility of Deputy Mayor Henry Caldwell, Who, along with other town and military leaders, came up with various committees to deal with the aftermath. They were extremely efficient. Sharon Adams writes for Legion Magazine: quote, The Shelter Committee opened an office at City Hall to match those needing and those offering accommodation, and committee members began patrolling for people in need. The Finance Committee secured a line of credit at the Bank of Nova Scotia which eventually donated $100,000 to the relief fund, which would be worth approximately $1.9 million today. A food bank was set up at City Hall. Civilian and military officials worked together from the start. A city council meeting at 3 p.m. on the day of the blast was held in the shattered town hall amidst splintered woodwork and floors covered in broken glass. Some of those present had been at work since the explosion without even an opportunity to ascertain whether their nearest and dearest were in safety." End quote. So, having the military population they did really made a incalculable positive impact on the number of lives that were saved. At the time of the explosion, there were approximately 5000 soldiers in and around Halifax, with about 3300 stationed at the garrison permanently in order to defend the harbor, and about 1,700 or so who were either in Halifax waiting to leave for the front or about to arrive or had just arrived in Halifax before returning home from the front, if that makes sense.
1: That's very valuable in
0: in that kind of situation. So, so valuable. And so I'm going to let an actual soldier explain better than I can. To quote Boileau, quote, Soldiers prepare for land warfare their entire uniformed life. And the monumental battles of the First World War gave an added impetus to this training. The destruction wrought on Halifax was, in every way comparable to the devastation the war brought to European communities in war zones. Soldiers and sailors, assisted by surviving policemen, firefighters, and others, dug through the rubble searching for survivors, fighting fires, setting up first aid posts, administering first aid evacuated victims to hospitals or other medical facilities, collected and delivered the dead, and provided or delivered food, clothing, and blankets, as well as hundreds of other items, including supplies to board up blown-out windows and doors, and guarded against looters, even though the Army and Navy had suffered casualties and damage to their facilities. Owners of serviceable cars, trucks, and horse-drawn wagons showed up spontaneously, or were asked to transport victims to medical facilities. If they did not volunteer, their vehicles were forcibly confiscated. By 8 p.m., soldiers had erected 400 tents equipped with wooden floors, cots, blankets, light and heat on the common in front of the armories to see to the immediate needs of the homeless or those without adequate shelter plus a 250-bed emergency marquee hospital. The tents were barely used, however, partly due to a snowstorm the next day, but also because most civilians did not believe a tent could provide adequate shelter, end quote. I read so many letters to, to different people, but a lot of people had said, you know, we have to take in as many as we, we can. Like, Not everybody was was super happy about having their houses packed with people, but most were.
1: Of course I understand that. Yeah, yeah most were. That's also something that happened here during the war that people from example German cities like Dresden or Hamburg were sent uh, down south and um, some ended up in Vienna and had to you know live in the in the apartments of the Viennese people which can be rough. Yeah can be rough of course. It's funny because I
0: recently looked into finding out how one went about hosting like if volunteering for that in certain situations and was kind of told no that's not really a thing
1: anymore yeah i think nowadays there are a lot of regulations yeah. for these kind of things yeah
0: all right so you remember dr clement ligore who we spoke about last mm-hmm. week who wanted to join the number 2 construction battalion but was passed over for the job he stayed behind when the unit deployed to the front and he became the first black physician in nova scotia first black doctor when he was passed over for the battalion doctor job, he applied for jobs at the city hospitals, but no one would hire him. So instead, he opened his own practice with a clinic and his home on North Street, which is today located uh, at 5812 to 5814 North Street. Uh, this is located in the north end of Halifax, and he named it the Amanda Private Hospital after his mother. And this is where he had been set up with his own practice for only a short time when the explosion happened Lindsay ruck writes quote almost immediately after the blast injured patients inundated dr liguri's office he was the only physician who serviced the entire area around willow street and north to the now destroyed cotton factory on the corner of kempt and roby with many cases coming through his door some extremely serious he pressed forward with only his housekeeper and a boarder to assist him. Despite being warned of a possible second explosion, he continued working non-stop for almost 10 and a half hours. Scores of his new patients had been turned away from hospitals. With nowhere else to go, they desperately sought out Dr. Lagore. The doctor spent his daylight hours working in his hospital and nights doing outside calls, coming home completely exhausted. The following Monday, he went straight to City Hall to let it be known that a dressing station was needed in his district. Without hesitation, the person in charge of medical relief, Lieutenant Rycroft, offered him the services of two nurses to alleviate the workload. And soon after, over a dozen more nurses and three men, including the assistant medical officer for medical relief, Captain Dr. Parker, were assigned to the North Street Hospital, now designated Number 4 dressing station. Dr. Liguori's team kept up with this grueling schedule until the 28th of December. From the 6th of December onward, he had not charged a single penny for his services. Afterward, he worked gratis for medical relief, but was at least given the use of a car to travel to and from his patients. Near the end of January 1918, he still treated over 50 people a day, many arriving at his office with explosion-related injuries. End quote. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. He's a real hero. He's a hero. Yeah. Yeah, One of many in this, in this, in these episodes. And he wasn't alone because from elsewhere in Canada, help was mobilizing as word spread. Make no mistake that there's a lot to talk about the Boston and Halifax connection, but other Canadians mobilized immediately and rapidly and very effectively. Boston was just a bigger city. George Cox was an E-E-N-T specialist, which today we would just say E-N-T, ears, nose, throat. But back then,
1: Mm,
0: yeah, back then it was eyes, ears, nose, throat was all one specialty. And Dr. Cox had come 100 kilometers or 62 miles from his home in New Glasgow. He was one of 11 doctors who, along with nurses and volunteers, arrived that evening. He wrote, quote, We had to make our way along streets and tracks blocked and covered with debris of all sorts. Everywhere, dead men on piles of black stuff. The whole area was darkened by smoke or lit up by flames from the burning debris. I found a really interesting article in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, which was entitled The Halifax Disaster, 1917. Eye Injuries and Their Care by Chrissa N. McAllister, T. Jock Murray, Hesham Lakosha, and Charles E. Maxner. And this article painted a very clear picture of the injuries responders were dealing with. It just gives a really clear account of a lot of things. So let's, let's read what they had to say. Quote, Halifax had four public hospitals, one private hospital and several military hospitals each with a few hundred beds. Cox walked from the train to the Camp Hill Hospital, a private veterans hospital, with 250 beds, and found over 1,500 men, women, and children lining the corridors. He first worked at a kitchen table, setting bones and repairing wounds, but quickly realized that the large number of eye cases required his expertise. Among the local physicians who responded immediately, were four other EENT specialists, Dr. Kirkpatrick, Dr. Mathers, Dr. Duell, and Dr. Cunningham. With the assistance of a sergeant, a nursing sister, and an anesthetist, Cox started operating and did not stop for several days. Quote, Pieces of glass were driven clear through the eyeball, he wrote, and one found it was necessary to feel about in the orbital tissue before dressing the case. End quote. Cox found pieces of glass as large as a square inch embedded in the orbit. Quote, Eyelids were cut into literal fringes, and in addition to removal of the eyeball, one often had to hunt to find material to reconstruct a set of lids. In many cases, the eyes were completely destroyed. Cox went along the rows of patients, examining eyes and marking those who required operations. He then placed linen tags on his patients listing their name, address, injury, treatment, and future needs. Cox performed 75 enucleations, which is the removal of the eyeball, and 5 double enucleations in 4 days, 75, so 85, he removed 85 eyes in 4 days, all under chloroform anesthesia. He did not record the total number of patients he treated. In many cases, it was not possible to do a formal operation. Several corneal perforations had an associated prolapsed iris. I thought this was interesting. He repaired those cases under topical cocaine anesthesia.
1: Didn't we talk about that uh, in one of the medical episodes, how cocaine was used to numb the eyes for eye surgery? I think so. I think we did, yeah, right? So this is a perfect mm-hmm. case of that, especially when they didn't have
0: enough anesthesia for everyone. And so a lot of people were having to have surgery with no anesthesia. It was like Civil War times, really, you know? And so I think in any chance you could, if someone primarily had eye injuries, that would be ideal, right? To save, save the heavier stuff and treat it more topically. Uh, it continues. Foreign bodies removed from the orbit included glass. So this, this is great, because this goes back to last—this isn't great, this is awful—but this goes back to last week in terms of what happens in an explosion. So foreign bodies removed from the orbit included glass, pottery, brick, mortar, and nails. Lacerated lids were primarily repaired. Cox, as an EENT specialist, treated several people with basal skull fractures, all of whom died and he was referred the severe facial lacerations, saying, quote, Mouths were cut almost from ear to ear. In many cases, they looked as if a tiger's claw had ripped down their faces, End quote. Trains from Boston and Montreal were delayed by snowstorms in New Brunswick. On the fifth day, the train from Montreal arrived with Captain T.F. Tuch, an EENT specialist with the Canadian Army Medical Corps, Tuke found Cox in a small back room at the Camp Hill Hospital, operating by the light of a single bulb. Cox had performed so many operations that his instruments would no longer cut. Most of the Camp Hill patients had already been treated by Cox, with only a few dozen unseen. Cox returned to New Glasgow, and Tuke started triaging patients. Tuke was taken aback by the state of the untreated injuries. He performed 48 eye operations, 16 of which required a nucleation. He asked Sergeant Wallace of the Army Service Corps to take notes of each patient's name, case, and treatment, and published the details of his experience in the April 1918 Journal of the Canadian Medical Association. End quote.
1: Unbelievable what these people accomplished. Yeah.
0: Unbelievable. And there was so much learned about eye care during this disaster. You could do an entire two-part episode just on that. It was such an impressive undertaking, and I've ordered a lot of books on the subject. So, as you all know, too many people did not live long enough to even have the chance to be treated. And that brings us to morgues. The mortuary committee was headed by former mayor Robert McElreath, who had been in office five years earlier, when the city responded to the catastrophic sinking of Titanic. Once again, Snow's funeral home and the manner that they had devised to deal with identifying and burying victims in that disaster would serve them very well. But this time, of course, the bodies that they're handling are their neighbors, friends, and relatives. Also, in addition to the added emotional pain, after Titanic, they had 209 bodies that they brought back to Halifax to prepare for burial. But after this explosion, I mean, we're talking about 10 times that number, literally. Military personnel washed the faces of those who could be recognized and went through the pockets of those who were unidentifiable, hoping to find items like watches or wallets, That might give some clue to the desperate family members that were lining up waiting to walk through the morgues.
1: This reminds me a lot of the disaster of Los Alfaques. They did the same, you remember? Yes, very much so.
0: Snow's funeral home was not big enough to handle everything. And so the Chibucto Road School ended up being used as a temporary morgue. It's now on the Register of Historic Places, and this is what that website says about the school. Quote, The Chibucto School is a large classical revival-style brick building in the north end of Halifax built between 1908 and 1910 to accommodate increasing numbers of children living in the north end of Halifax. The school was considered at the time to be the largest and finest school in Halifax. The school, being a large and relatively undamaged building, was used as a triage and first aid center, a morgue, and later a funeral home. During this time, students were sent to other schools. However, the school was eventually returned to its original use. The school closed in 1975 and, presently, is a home to the Maritime Conservatory of Performing Arts. End quote. And as soon as people heard that they were going to be using this school as a morgue, the bodies began to arrive. Even before they were in any way ready to receive them, the bodies arrived. Boileau writes, Once its doors opened on December 7th, soldiers began to deliver corpses from hospitals, undertakers, and the devastated area. Embalmers came from across the province and further away to assist the overwhelmed local ones. Each body was numbered, described, and an exact record made of where it was found. Most of the bodies recovered from Richmond were burned to some degree. Sometimes, this reminded me of Los Alfaques, sometimes the only entry made was, quote, charred remains, or similar wording. Workers carefully cataloged personal effects and put them into numbered mortuary bags, along with any undamaged clothing. As many as 70 soldiers assisted in this difficult daily work at the morgue, another 25 to 50 servicemen formed digging and covering-in parties at various cemeteries on a daily basis. Soon, a steady stream of ambulances, wagons, and private cars arrived at its doors, laden with the dead, from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. daily. Burials of unidentified bodies began on December 17th. Ninety-five badly charred remains were interred that day. The funeral service took place beforehand in the Chibucto Road schoolyard, witnessed by about 3,000 people. To the music of the Princess Louise Fusilier's band, soldiers carried wreath-adorned caskets from the basement and laid them in rows outside. Protestant and Roman Catholic services followed. Afterward, soldiers loaded the coffins onto trucks, took them to the Fairview or Mount Olivet cemeteries and placed them in waiting graves. End quote.
1: This is the Fairview that's the one you mentioned in the Titanic episode,
0: right? Yes. So that particular cemetery is now very, very high on my list because it has both grave sites of Titanic mm. and Halifax. Boileau continues, quote, additional burials took place until Christmas Eve. Can you just imagine like this is I don't know. All I can think about is months and months of just, uh, well, basically just a month, the entire month. Yeah. Quote, additional burials took place until Christmas Eve. Authorities buried a large number of unidentified remains in a bare patch of ground next to the new railway cutting through the western side of the peninsula toward the new train station. More bodies continued to be found until well into the spring when workers completed a proper clearance of the wreckage. In the end, about 250 bodies remained unidentified, end quote. And I believe the last body was recovered in 1919. That's terrible. But before we talk about the lasting connection between Halifax and Boston, can I just real quick request that anyone who spent time at the Chebukto School School of the Performing Arts. Tell us what the vibe is there, because I need to know. And the reason I need to know is because Snow's Funeral Home is apparently now very haunted. It's a haunted, haunted restaurant. After serving as a funeral home for years, back in 1975, it became a restaurant called The Five Fishermen. And I think it's a very excellent, popular restaurant, because well, it's been in business since 1975, but it's not just popular with the living. On fivefisherman.com, I read all of their information, which was wonderful, and they discuss their hauntings. And I'm not gonna tell you everything, because you can go take a look yourself, but there were two in particular that caught my attention. One is this sort of diaphanous, misty gray fog that seems to move about with preternatural sort of ability. So they'll hear a tapping on the window and look out and it's just a gray fog, that kind of thing. The other thing that I thought was creepy, to quote their website, quote, One sunny day, at three o'clock in the afternoon, it fell to a young fellow the task of setting up the salad bar. He was alone when he heard a loud crash, and when he looked around the corner of the bar he found several pieces of an ashtray on the floor. He bent down to retrieve the pieces, and when he stood up, he was looking directly into a mirror. And in the mirror, he could see the reflection of an old man walking away from him down the aisle. He was tall, with long gray hair, and was wearing a long black coat that seemed to be from another time. Startled, for he was sure he was the only person in the restaurant, he turned to see who this could be, but there was no one there. When he turned back to the mirror, the image had disappeared. Thinking his eyes were playing tricks on him, he shrugged and returned to his duties. Several years later, the assistant manager was having a conversation with a customer on the phone at the station across from the salad bar. Again, it was three o'clock in the afternoon, and he was the only one in the dining room. At one point, he saw an elderly man standing on the landing below. Excuse me, sir, I'll be right with you. After he finished his conversation, he went to see how he could help this gentleman, but couldn't find him anywhere. He wasn't on the landing, and he wasn't in the foyer below. He checked the doors, and they were locked, so there was no way anyone could get in. Later on that evening, he described this odd experience to some of his fellow staff members, one of whom was the same fellow who was setting up the salad bar several years before. Was he an older gentleman with long gray hair? And was he wearing a long black coat like an outdated greatcoat? Apparently, they had both encountered the same apparition. End quote. Creepy. It's so specific, you know. Also, I want to note. A uh, sort of very sad ending for Dr. Lagore, who continued his practice through the year and into the next. He would eventually close the Amanda private hospital, and he bought a home in Schmidtville, Schmidville. In early 1922, he was visiting his brother in Tobago. He had gone home for a visit, and when he was there, he contracted malignant malaria, and he died on May twenty-third, 1922 at the age of 34. Mm. In 2021, Doctors Nova Scotia announced the Dr. Clement Lagore Award. This award was created to recognize, quote, exemplary service during a medical crisis. The inaugural award recipient was Dr. Robert Strang, Nova Scotia's Chief Medical Officer of Health. So, I think that was probably in response to COVID. But I think it's absolutely wonderful that such a such a really fantastic award is named after Dr. Clement Lagore yeah. because I'm just fascinated by his whole life, really, and how funny, not funny haha, but you know we talk all the time about you know this man had a plan and his hopes and dreams were kind mm. of dashed and it left him in Halifax, and he's sort of making the best of it and then. It all worked out for the best because he was so desperately needed there and would not really have been if he had gone overseas. Okay, as we come to an end of this episode, now it's time to talk about why this case caught my eye in the first place. And that was actually when I covered Titanic. So many of you messaged to say to us that we had to do Halifax next, right? And I was like, yes, definitely. And then I immediately forgot. And then I remembered again when I saw something about it on the news. Through all of this, Halifax did not act alone, and we all know how much support helps us on an individual level when we're going through something, but it's really true on a much larger scale as well. I used to be sort of jaded and thought these sorts of things don't really matter until the Boston Marathon bombing, because when that happened, I was sincerely touched and warmed by the world's response. The other thing to keep in mind is that Boston and Halifax were not always on the same side of things, historically speaking. It's not like they were BFFs forever and ever, yeah. right? Yeah. So I found a great article by Michael Lightstone, and he write, wrote an article for the Halifax City News on the 100th anniversary of the event, which was six years ago. And I really enjoyed his writing, and I thought I would share his writing with you because he is from the area and lives in the area of Halifax and Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And I just think the perspective of a Haligonian is a lot more interesting than that of a Bostonian in this case.
1: Are they called Haligonian? I love that. That's a very pretty word. Yeah,
0: it is good, right? So Michael Lightstone writes, quote, Most Canadians and Americans familiar with the Halifax explosion probably know about the relief train that was sent here from Boston. A blizzard following the December 6, 1917 blast, delayed Massachusetts' unsolicited response by rail. The train headed up to Nova Scotia carrying medical supplies and other goods, American Red Cross representatives, surgeons, additional doctors and nurses, specialists, including an anesthetist and ophthalmologist. What many on both sides of the border may not realize is aid continued to flow to Halifax from the people of Massachusetts after the relief train, which was also hampered by a broken-down engine, arrived on December 8. Once grim news of the tragedy had reached Boston, municipal and state leaders of the day mobilized. An article in Boston Magazine in 2015 said the state of Massachusetts donated more than $750,000. The arts community responded and did what it could too. The Boston Symphony Orchestra performed a benefit concert for Halifax in the days following the catastrophe. Brian Douglas Tennyson says in his 2015 book Canada's Great War 1914-1918 that responses to the disaster from the Boston region and beyond included these. Harvard University transported a complete hospital unit to Halifax. Maine sent 110 doctors plus nurses and other volunteers, and other emergency response trains began arriving from Philadelphia and Washington. Turtle Grove, the small Mi'kmaq community on the Dartmouth side of the harbor, was blasted during the disaster. Inhabitants were killed there, but most survived. In Halifax, much of the city was in ruins. Blair Bede, in his 1998 book, 1917 Halifax Explosion, and American Response, says the train from Massachusetts was not the only mode of transportation used to provide help for Nova Scotia's capital. Supply ships from Boston steamed toward the city as well. The aid from Massachusetts didn't stop precisely a century ago, Tennyson notes in his book. Quote, upon the Americans' return home, he wrote, Many of the people involved in the relief effort formed an organization which they called the Halifax Massachusetts Relief Associates which worked with Halifax and the government of Nova Scotia for the next 5 years to improve the lives of survivors quote Tennyson's book says the people of Nova Scotia and particularly Halifax were astonished and gratified by the unconditional assistance swift well-organized help given by the Americans 100 years ago, end quote. And this is the reason they send us a tree every year. The first one came in 1918 as a gesture of thanks for the help that the Boston Red Cross and Massachusetts Public Safety Committee had provided immediately following the disaster, and then it stopped for a while. Because I think probably just PTSD, there was just so much trauma and. You read a lot of reports where people just didn't talk about it, Yeah, you know, the work of historians like Kitts and others have done so much to bring this event back to us and keep everybody from forgetting because that that was close to happening, I think. Not really mm-hmm. forgetting, but there was so much trauma and so so many people didn't want to speak that we almost lost the entire generation that lived through it. In 1971, the Lunenburg Country Christmas tree producers revived the tradition, and it was eventually taken over by the government. And today's trees don't come from lots, but from the land belonging to private citizens who happily give these trees that matter to them to us. I think that's lovely. I'm glad they restarted that tradition. I am too. It's just nice to be reminded of the good in the world. And it's, it's just yeah. nice to remember that people care.
1: Thank you so much. That was really, extremely interesting. Very sad. Horrible. But yeah. Thank you to all of
0: the authors and researchers who provided me with really unlimited amount of information. This was a tough one just to pick and choose what I wanted to talk about. So I was really thrilled to find a few key sources that uh, summed up everything else I had read so so beautifully.
1: All right. Uh, something good. Should I go so you can Please. relax for a second? Uh, my something good is that, well, I have to say that for the last two or three days, it has been snowing on and off. And today is, is, is a lot of snow here. We're not used to it here in the region because I think I mentioned it. we're in the wine region. So it's a little bit milder climate. But uh, I just heard that the fire sirens went off while we were recording, and apparently there was a, an accident on the street. So it's it's a day to stay at home, and that's my something good, that we have a roof, and we have firewood, and we're safe at home, and we're not cold out there, which I had to think about when you said that the blizzard, the nor'easter, was coming for them. And yeah, I think it's it's something to be grateful for. Yeah,
0: yeah. Absolutely.
1: How about you? We had a really lovely Thanksgiving.
0: It was so relaxed. We had dinner at a good friend's of ours home with some other friends. And it was just one of the nicest, most relaxing Thanksgivings that we've had in a long time. And I left Opus home alone for five hours with Bean. So he I didn't worry because they were they were together. Yeah. And they're good now. They're better. He's not dragging her around by her head as much. So that feels like a win. But yeah, just very thankful for for everyone, for all the good things. Just try to focus on the good things.
1: One thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us the huge favor. And go to your podcast app and see if you can leave us a rating and or review. It really helps us. And other ways to help us and support this podcast is by sharing our content, uh, recommending us. Uh, If somebody in a Facebook group asks, hey, do you know a really cool podcast? Tell them, Fresh Out Podcast is the best. Uh, You can go and check out our Patreon. We just had to get together last night. Uh, because of the snow that was going on, my internet kept cutting out in the end, but it was still very lovely. I had such a great time, and Annie as well. And we uploaded another episode of Tell Me Everything today. And for everything else, please go to our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com. There you find all the links. Contact us via freshhellpodcast at gmail.com. And that's it. Please be kind to your pets, say hi to them, tell them we love them, hug them, kiss them, cuddle them, put them under the blanket, or uh, give them enough water and keep them cool if you're on the other side, on the other hemisphere. (laughs) And uh, be kind to your fellow human being. And the most important thing is be kind to yourself. I know it's hard. It is hard. Also, be kind, rewind. (laughs) Sorry. I think we've outgrown that. Have we? (laughs) Have we? (laughs) (laughs) Just remember,
0: as Churchill infamously said during World War II, if you're going through hell,
1: keep going. Tschüss. Bye.